This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. Today is August 19th of 2021. My name is John Dunn, and if you can believe it, this is episode 76. Now, if we're members of the same animal sheltering and animal welfare groups on Facebook, then you've probably read some of the same posts I have. There are lots of posts from your peers around the country who are overwhelmed. Hell, you may have even put up one of those posts yourself. After all the good things that the pandemic brought to our industry, many people were concerned about what would happen when things started to shift back to normal. People going back to work, for example. What would this mean for our foster homes? We went a long time, basically everywhere in the country at some point, with limited or no spay-neuter surgeries at all. The lag in those surgeries? How would that affect things? Now, it's difficult to truly know what is driving the situation we're in right now. Are people going back to work contributing to this in a big way? Is it just general uncertainty? Probably both of those and many other factors. But what we do know is that things across the country are really tough. As you will hear in a few minutes, intake right now isn't the biggest factor. Nationally, intake is not up in the way that we may feel it is. But the data is showing that we are struggling with positive outcomes. They're down. We're not getting animals out of the shelter like we were in 2020 or even 2019. Instead of we as the shelter are gonna do something, we as the community have this opportunity to make this change and starting to talk about some of our problems that way. Like we have to present problems so that people will get inspired to solve them, but it's that inspiration, not just like throw $5 at us and it's gonna go away. It's like, this is something that we have the opportunity to do together and you can be a part of this really important thing. And sometimes that includes telling them about a really hard problem. Like right now, our adoptions are down, our fostering is down, and this is a difficult moment for the world, and that includes our, our animals in our local community. But here's how we can do it together, and presenting them with the ways that they can help, I think is a really important part of not making people feel helpless and making them feel like they can do something about a problem that feels really large. That's Caitlin Quinn with Heart Speak, a fantastic organization dedicated to helping you market your shelter organization mission more effectively. They've got all sorts of resources to help you market the pets in your care. And as they will tell you, even a good photo, which you can take with the phone in your pocket, can increase the speed at which your animals are adopted up to 60% faster. We'll have links to those resources on the podcast website, bestfriends.org slash podcast. We'll have lots of great tips and insight from Caitlin coming up. But what about the data? Over the last few weeks and months, we've been keeping a very close eye on this. So to get an update and see what the trends may be telling us, here's Senior Director of National Programs for Best Friends, Brent Tolner. You know, we get our data from 24 Pet Watch, Pet Health. They're very generous with the data, and they have about 1,200 shelters across the country that are part of their network, and so they aggregate the data and share it out. And what we're seeing from their data is, yeah, intake's going up. I think we all expected that intake would go up, but it's kind of minimal compared to 2020. So it's up about 4.4% compared to 2020 numbers on the year, which is still substantially lower. Yeah, about 22% lower than it was in 2019. So we're going up uh, as we come out of the pandemic, but at a very slow rate. What has been concerning for us is when we look at the outcomes data, 
Uh, and we're seeing that adoptions are actually down from 2020 uh, and then down substantially from 2019. And this is particularly true with dogs. So dog adoptions are actually down about 8%. Uh, through the month of July compared to 2020 numbers. And so in those, and we're down 28% compared to 2019 numbers. So it doesn't take much of an increase in intake with a decrease in adoptions. And all of a sudden the shelter system's kind of getting jammed up uh, because animals aren't getting adopted out uh, at, a, at a quick rate. So you said 4%. Is that 4% over the year 2020 data? 4% over 2020, which is actually a lot lower than I would have expected it to be at this point. So intake is up. Yes, but above 2020, but way less than what we would have consider a baseline year of 2019. So where are we compared to 2019 then? I mean, the last time we talked about this a few weeks ago, nationally for this year, we were not getting really anywhere near 2019 in terms of intake, the, the numbers. Is that still holding true? So 2019 would have been the baseline year, right? So that would have been pre-pandemic type stuff. And intake dropped substantially. We were down about 20% across the board in 2020 in intake. When, If you consider 2019 being normal and 2020 being kind of a COVID-impacted year, we're much closer to the 2020 COVID-impacted year than we are like what would have been normal pre-pandemic. To be clear, your individual mileage may vary. You may be in a community where intake is up from the 2019, that baseline. Uh, and even if it's not, I mean, you're still full. Uh, and I think the most concerning part when you say these things to me, Brent, is that adoption figure, those outcomes, which is why we thought we should talk about that this week. Adoptions down that much that's really concerning. And, and it's a trend line too, you know, so it's like it, it was down substantially from 2019 to 2020. It's, and for dogs, it's down almost 8% for 2021. So it's definitely slowed uh, from an adoptions perspective. And there are a lot of reasons for that, right? You know, so, you know, I think as we got into the summer and out of the pandemic, a lot of people started what some media termed as rage traveling, you know, taking advantage of the fact that they hadn't been able to travel for 16 months and were traveling all over to different places. And airport numbers substantiate that there was a lot of personal air travel. And so that might have delayed them getting a pet. They were going back to the office for the first time in a while. And so some people were delaying a pet over because of that. Uh, a lot of people were changing jobs. We've heard about a lot of the job issues and a lot of the job movement. Uh, that was definitely happening too. And so if you think look at those three in tandem, we actually did some research about around that too and found that about 60% of people who are considering getting a pet were choosing to delay getting a, a new pet because of one of those factors. If we think about other industries, retail, for example, you know, you've got giants like Walmart. They've got ungodly amounts of data predictive modeling. They're pulling in like weather and all sorts of stuff that can give them a decent idea, I think, of what might be coming. Or at the very least, it helps them look at some different scenarios, right? Puts them in a position, whenever those things may happen, they can react to it more quickly, right? But we don't have any of that. I mean, do we have any idea of what might be coming? Yeah, I think the best we can do is educated guesses about what might happen. You know, we ha did see from June to July a slight increase in adoptions. So adoptions had been down substantially, in, particularly in May and June. We started seeing that tick up a little bit. So hopefully that's a, a trend in the right direction for some stuff. But still, we have a long way to go. And I, I think 
yeah, just forecasting six months out right now is nearly impossible. You know, we can make educated guesses, but I don't think anybody truly could say they know what's going to happen in that realm. In lieu of Target or Walmart business intelligence capabilities, Brent, you're the best I know at this. You study this stuff incredibly closely. You've got a ton of historical knowledge. So I'm interested to know how you feel. You look at these numbers. Are you concerned? Are you cautiously optimistic? Do you think we're just in a little blip? Uh, Are you terrified? You know, I think on the shelter, like, shelter data, shelter numbers level, I think we're going to be okay. Like we're still trending in a lot of positive directions. The shelter industry continues to be very innovative in terms of how they're ebbing and flowing with the, the dramatic changes. A lot of the positive changes that happened during the COVID are, are taking root. Uh, there's still a lot of positive progress uh, taking place. I worry on the people side of things. It uh, continues to be a lot in an already stressful industry to have so many different things thrown at you uh, and to have to continue to adjust. And I, I do worry that uh, a substantial number of the people out in our industry are becoming very almost decision fatigued uh, by the constant decision making and uncertainty that's out there. And so that probably concerns me most of all. When I talked to Brent this week, I came away, I gotta be honest with you, pretty disheartened. That adoption decrease is really shocking. But as is very often the case, the proverbial ball is in our court. Adoptions are down, we need to get animals out. So so how are we communicating about our organization, the animals in our care, our needs, how the public can help us? Are we using best practices or are we using language that is turning people away? We can't force people to not take that vacation, stay home and adopt, but we can engage the public more effectively. To learn more about how to do that, we spoke with Caitlin Quinn, Director of Operations for HeartSpeak. So I have been in the animal welfare field for almost 12 years. Um, I started my work with Animal Farm Foundation and worked on mostly adoption policy and the way that we were talking about pit bulls and marketing them to the public at the time. Um, I think it's hard to remember sometimes that just, you know, 2008 doesn't seem like it was that long ago, but the the way that we were treating and talking about pit bulls was really different then. So that's the work that I started with. And then six years ago, started with HeartSpeak. And really, um, my passion is in doing whatever I can to support shelter staff. So whether that was working through adoption policies and now really just trying to make everything about communicating to the public easier, because I know that most of us don't have training in this. We don't have marketing or media relations training. And I'm really interested in how we can build connections in the community and how we can make that feel not like a lot of extra work for most people in shelters and rescues. Now, for those that aren't familiar with your organization, Caitlin, can you talk about HeartSpeak, the work you do? Yeah, so HeartSpeak is celebrating its 11th year now, um, and it was founded by uh, my boss, Lisa Prince-Fischler. She's a professional photographer and really just saw this opportunity in the work that she was doing to put that artwork to use for animals. Um, So the first few years of the program were really focused on building a professional network of artists who would volunteer their services in shelters and rescues and really just um, kind of rebrand the way that we were looking at shelter animals at the time. Like a lot of, I think it's another thing that we forget that, um, you know, cell phones weren't taking great pictures at that time and photos of animals in shelters were really casting them in a pretty negative light. They looked pretty pathetic. (laughs) Um, So that 
work that artists were doing to kind of elevate what people thought of shelter animals was really important. Um, and since then, in the last five or six years, we've really also invested in shelter-facing programs like training, free resources, and just everything that, as I was saying before, like really intends to make the act of marketing and communicating a little bit easier for those of us that don't have training or, or maybe don't have a ton of experience in those areas or don't have graphic design skills, any of that kind of stuff that really does become important, especially in digital marketing right now. Well, I'm not sure what you mean, Caitlin, because I've got a Canva Pro account. So I think that automatically means I am a professional graphic designer. Right. That is, that's where we all sit now, right? <laughs> is that in that space? Well, I'm kidding, but I sort of not. You know, we have access to this insane amount of tools today and it's given everybody the ability to create content. You know, you don't have to know complex image editing software these days. Yeah. But it is, I think, important to note, especially in the context of this conversation, that, you know, just because you have a platform that allows you to create graphics easily, you don't necessarily know how to create good graphics. You still need to learn how to create effective marketing materials. Yeah. And I think that that is, you've hit the nail on the head in terms of just how all of us really are marketers. Like, I think that we have to define that term for ourselves a little bit because often it sounds intimidating and a little bit slick and um, like something that you have to pay a lot of money for. But truly, we all do have that capability with a little bit of, you know, conversation even. I don't even want to call it training. Like, just really talking about what is it that we mean when we talk about marketing and what does it mean to connect with the community and really make that a two-way conversation and not just kind of like spamming them with information. And I... I'm so grateful for Canva <laughs> and cell phones and all these tools that all of us have in the palms of our hands, because I think the way that we look at it is, you know, democratizing graphic design and democratizing marketing and making sure that everybody feels empowered to be a part of that process. So we have this data, it's telling us, it seems like really the biggest issue does seem to be, uh, you know, a fairly dramatic reduction in positive outcomes. I'm curious why you think things are the way they are right now. I've been talking with so many people about this, and I think that um, it seems like a little bit of a perfect storm, you know, in terms of just a lot of different factors um, influencing seeing adoptions go down. I think it has to do with people getting back out in the world and kind of hesitating to maybe adopt right now because they feel like maybe I'm not going to be at home as much and, and perhaps overthinking that decision. I think that you know, understaffing in our shelters has a lot to do with how we are able to just respond to these kinds of issues that have been a little bit cyclical in our in our lives and sheltering. But when you're understaffed and everybody's been working so hard through a really difficult pandemic, I think it has a lot to do with that as well. Like we can only do so much as much as we throw ourselves into this work. And I think that's why we're also seeing a lot of conversations about burnout and compassion fatigue, because I think it's, it's valid. There are some systemic issues around our workplace culture. And I think it also, you know, perhaps has to do with our history of, of not always being so friendly to, to outsiders of animal welfare and some of the press that's come out around that recently. So there, when articles are saying, you know, you beg for a dog for adoption, you know, the, the New Yorker article that came out, I think it's a small population of people that see that kind of thing, but it does make its way into the way that people think about pet adoption. And when there's already maybe a reputation out there that we have turned people away or that you're not going to get a pet through adoption, you know, ways of adoption, any little piece of press like that, I think is harmful in, in that storytelling that we're trying to do th that says, come, we're going to be friendly. We want you to adopt. We want you to partake in this, um, this world that we live in. 
So I think that that is also a place where marketing has some power because we can, and especially in our local communities, start to tell a little bit of a different story and maybe help people, A, see the need, because if they're not seeing it and they want to be out of the house and doing things right now, we can kind of bring them back into our reality. And B, we can perhaps tell a different story about how we do want people to be participating in our services and in our programs. I totally agree with you on the uncertainty. And I'm having some of those same conversations. Personally, I do feel even maybe more uncertain today than I did a few weeks ago or months ago. I mean, eight or nine months ago, I was feeling pretty optimistic. There was a timeline that it sounds cheesy, but it gave me hope, you know, like we're developing a vaccine. We're all going to get it and off we go. But that's obviously not the way it's working out. So who knows what November, December is going to look like through the winter, you know? Right. Uh, So yeah, I mean, ask me, am I ready to adopt a new pet today? I I don't know. So when we're talking about marketing adoptions, you know, I'm not suggesting we go use car salesman, Caitlin, Uh, apologies to use car salesmen. You know, we're not, we shouldn't be guilting people or somehow trying to bamboozle them into adopting. But I do think we could be doing more to let people know that, yeah, we don't know what's going to happen in six months. But if something does, there are safety nets to help you, right? We could have a temporary foster program. And if we had to, we could help you rehome your pet in six months. Not because pets are disposable. We're not happy to do that for you. But life happens. We get that. So, you know, don't let that be your biggest concern because we'll still be here for you. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think you're a hundred percent right. I think so often we're talking about, um, you know, we're sucked into our world of animal welfare. So we're talking about how all of this affects us, but everything that you just said, a lot of other people in a lot of other fields are talking about right now, just this, this long-term exhaustion that everybody is having around uncertainty. And like you were just saying, like, even if we all, I think, a lot of us had this mental kind of like finish line when we thought about vaccines. So it's like, okay, I got my vaccine. I can do more stuff now. I can kind of look at my life the way that I looked at it maybe a year and a half ago. And I think this moment, especially right now, is kind of torpedoing that idea. (laughs) And so I also agree with you that, and I think that this is where it's important to define, I think we use marketing as a catch-all term when we really mean um, communications and community engagement sometimes, because I don't think we should be marketing like, don't worry, just adopt a pet. Like that's going to solve everything. Like you just said, because we don't want to be setting anybody up for failure in this process. But I think through the acts of communication and community engagement, we can perform that kind of two-way conversation of like, here's what's happening with us. We really would love for you to come adopt, foster, volunteer, like here's where our need is. And we really need you to understand that because the truth of the matter is most people outside of our little bubble have no knowledge of what it is that we're going through or, or what it means even when we say that we're at capacity or that adoptions have slowed. That's really hard for someone to wrap their minds around. It sounds really big and scary. So I think that there is a role when we say marketing in, in more of that communications lens of helping people understand our situation and also asking the community like, What's going on with you? How would you like to help? What are the things that you would like to see us doing that we could be working on together to solve this problem? Um, And that's also, I think, where we come up with some of our most creative solutions because it's where we can partner with local businesses. It's where we can partner with other nonprofits and, and have kind of a centralized message in our community coming out. So I think 
that's part of this conversation is really deciding what is it that we mean when we're when we're throwing around this term marketing and how can it help us in this moment um, with this really kind of unique problem that we're having. So let's say I'm an adoptions coordinator, shelter in the Midwest, I don't know, 800 animals a year intake. Prior to the pandemic, I was already you know, running ragged. Now my department of two people is now one, and I'm also now taking on responsibilities for the foster program. I know it's hard. Everybody's different in terms of their situation, Yeah. but understaffed and overwhelmed, I think is pretty well universal. But me, adoptions coordinator comes to you, Caitlin, and I say, help me. Yeah. What do you say? If you have, you know, just an hour, one week, you have 30 minutes, 15 minutes, an hour at the most to, to make this happen. I think that we have put a lot of our eggs in the digital marketing basket, right? So we, we have um, someone who's posting on social media and we, we're pushing that. But I think we forget about the magic of any kind of local media. And this doesn't, you don't have to write a press release. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to Google how to write a press release and, and fill it out in that format. I think it's as simple as pitching some of your local media folks, which is just a quick Google search and find out what the press room email address is for your local radio station, your local TV station, in your local newspaper, um, if you have one, and sending them a really concise kind of paragraph of what your story is. So here's our story. We Adoptions are down, but we really don't think it's because of returns, right? If we want to get that kind of um, pandemic puppy returns storyline in there, because I think um, we are trying to, to tell a, a really accurate narrative. So put that hook in there because they're going to be interested in like, oh, wait, they're saying that it's not because of returns, but what is happening here? And say, we really need the community's help because this is a community effort to get these animals homes. And you don't even have to adopt if that's not possible for you right now. You can foster, you can volunteer. We need donations to, you know, get more crates for, so we're not overloading kennel space. Any, whatever your talking points are, you can do that really concisely and don't worry about the press release style of doing things. And this can, you could do this in 15 minutes if that's all you have. But I think we forget how important that local reach is. And no matter how localized our organization is on social media, you're not always reaching that population of people. And in all of our communities, there are people who have no idea that there is an animal shelter. (laughs) They have no idea where it is in the community and they have no idea what we're going through because that message hasn't gotten to them. So in my view of that, if you have one thing, that's probably the most valuable thing you could do right now is make those connections. And you may not hear from some people, but I also would encourage you to check back in (laughs) and kind of be relentless about getting that story out through these local channels because someone is going to hear you and want to help you tell that story. As a former radio news journalist, that's actually how I got into the field. Long story for another episode. Uh, But I was always looking for animal stories. A lot of my days were, and this is not a joke, from a house fire to a car wreck to a car wreck to a murder to a house fire. It was pretty tough. It was awful. So, of course, I love doing animal stories And as a reporter, you develop relationships with people in the community. You start to get to know folks and they're coming back and pitching me stuff all the time. Couldn't always do it, but I usually could do a story. So totally find your local journalist, buddy up. You know, it's interesting. Your first tip was traditional media. I think the digital side is where a lot of us, most of us are probably putting the lion's share of the effort. I've got limited time, resources, that's free. Everybody seems to be there, right? Everybody's on Facebook. So should I be on Facebook? 
is Facebook still the place? Is it generating the same level of response that it used to? I mean, I hate to say it, but you know, a lot of these questions can be answered through analytics. But if I barely have time to get through the adoptions email inbox today, I mean, who could sift through all of that analytics data? So how can I make decisions of where to put my time and effort in an informed way? And even those analytics in truth are so limited. Like, so we can see who, how many people are viewing something and how many people are engaging, but it doesn't tell us how many of those people are taking action afterwards. (laughs) Like, unless we're also, um, you know, including in our adoption survey, how did you hear about us? Which I do encourage people to kind of start to zero in on that, especially as we are seeing kind of a sea change in the way that people use digital media. Those analytics are only going to get you so far. And I think, especially talking to folks who don't have a marketing staff, even like it, those of you who are wearing many, many hats, right? So you're the adoption counselor and you're the, or the, you're the manager and you're also performing social media tasks and things like that. I think you really do have to think seriously about what impact are we seeing from the posts that we're doing. So if we're posting on Facebook six times a day, but each of those posts are getting just a few interactions, that's probably telling us that we're posting too often because we're, it's just a sea of white noise. And at that point, when you're posting that often on something like Facebook, you're kind of posting over yourself. Like people are only going to see one maybe out of those six posts, if even that. So my advice for, let's just talk about Facebook for a moment, because I think most of us are still on there, is use video, especially live video. And if you can do something like a couple shelters that we've worked with are doing um, like live adoption showcases, right? So you take two staff members, one holds the camera, one is uh, handling animals, and you just talk about the animals, you know, whether you're bringing them out into a yard, if they're dogs, or you're walking through your cat facilities, showing people the inside of our shelters and the animals that are there does two things. It helps them connect with individual animals, because when we talk about the problem that we're facing, it sounds big, and it sounds unsolvable when we talk about how many animals need homes. So helping them see individual animals and connect is really important. The second part is... I think many of us have heard people say to us, I couldn't do what I do because I think it would be too sad. Or I've never been to the shelter because I'm afraid of what I'm going to see there. And that's still a huge hurdle for us in most of our communities, no matter what your facility looks like. Even if it's the most brand new, beautiful facility or you're operating in a building from the 1950s, breaking down those barriers and showing people it's not, it's okay. <laughs> like, there's a lot of actually really good stuff happening here and there's there's joy to be had which I think circles back to your point earlier with the media. I think too often we have kind of learned or, or taught ourselves or told ourselves this story that we have to make an appeal that makes people feel like everything is horrible to get them to take action. So we have to show them the one-eyed kitten and the, the dog with three legs, or we have to operate in that model of making people feel guilty so that they will take action. And I think, especially in this moment, when everything in the world is so big and so difficult, we really need to take advantage of that ability to bring joy to people's lives. So even if you can't do a live video, or you're a little intimidated, start with a pre-recorded, really short video clip of a cute animal <laughs> or and add some music or don't add some music, just talk about that animal, but take a small snapshot of some something joyful happening Um, which also helps us, I think, notice some of that joy because in our day-to-day life, we're surrounded by animals and that's what fuels a lot of us, but we're also overwhelmed and and overworked in a lot of cases. So it, it kind of performs double duty that way. But I think video 
to, to really get back to the, the question that you asked me, is a good way to, to really make the most bang for your buck on, a, on most platforms. I said it earlier, you know, sometimes talking about this type of stuff can be difficult because everybody's at different stages of knowledge and capability. Mm-hmm. So people may hear this and say, well, I can't do that Facebook Live she's talking about because I don't have anyone to hold the camera. It's just me. Right. But there are solutions for all of this type of stuff, really. I mean, go buy a selfie stick. Exactly. You can do this completely alone. We, I have worked with shelters who have one staff, you know, that the whole shelter is staffed by two people. And so one person does have to do this a lot. And they're also the animal control officer or the animal services officer. So it's possible. I think that we have to, and it's so hard. I don't want to be preachy about this because I think it's really hard to see solutions when you're overwhelmed. And I think that a lot of us are overwhelmed by just the world right now. <laughs> um, but looking for those solutions and saying like, okay, I don't have two people. My job is super big and I only have 10 minutes to devote to this. That means that you can still take five minutes and do a live video of just a walkthrough with a selfie stick or you holding the phone. Like don't even wait for the selfie stick to arrive in the mail. (laughs) Like hold that phone, walk through the shelter, point out animals, and it's going to be imperfect. And that's totally fine. Live video is all about imperfection. Crazy things are going to happen that you didn't plan on. And that's totally okay. Hopefully they've got longer arms than I do, because even with a selfie stick, it's like an extreme close up for me. And I can tell you that my lockdown skin, not quite ready for that. I know. <laughs> or just turn on your front facing camera. You don't even have to be there. Because I know that that is part of also what um, intimidates a lot of us is like, I'm a behind the scenes person. I don't want to be on camera. So that's fine. Turn the front facing camera on and, or the back facing camera on and just talk about the animals, just narrate what you're seeing, narrate what you really want people to know. So we have beautiful, amazing animals here and they're kind of the hidden gems in the community. And we want you to know that we need your help to solve this problem. If adoptions are down, we can only solve this with your help. And there are many, many ways that you can engage and help us solve that. One of the things that makes me so proud to work for Best Friends, something that it's just so core to the organization, it goes all the way back to the founders made a commitment that as an organization, we're not going to sell sad. We're not going to make people feel badly, feel guilty. We always want to be positive in the way we talk about everything, right? Individual animals, the larger mission, because if you do the opposite, I think human nature maybe is, you know, you want people to feel the same struggle you feel, right? That despair, because if they feel what I do, then they'll get it, right? That'll make the public care. It's really not the way to get people to help you. I think on the whole, most people hear that kind of stuff and they just turn away. So I think everything that you're saying is 100% true. And and when we talk about positive marketing, I want to be really clear that it's not like sunshine and rainbows and everything's fine over here. We just kind of need your help but we're not going to tell you about the problem. (laughs) I think it's really important to make people understand the problem. And I think that can sometimes be talking about a a specific animal who's suffering. Right. And I think that there is, it's very subtle changes, but it's instead of saying this animal is really suffering in our care, really not doing well. When we talk about that, if we're the caretakers, then aren't we at fault for that? (laughs) Right. Like if you're a community member and you don't understand anything about, how difficult the shelter environment is for so many animals, no matter how beautiful the building is and how it's not supernatural for animals who are social to be living in isolation. And that's a, that's a really hard thing to talk about (laughs) with the public. So instead in those messages, we have to just say this specific animal is 
really having a hard time adjusting to life without their family or to like, so phrase it in a way that you would talk to your friend or someone who has no idea about animal welfare, animal behavior, any of that kind of thing. And in your elevator pitch kind of way. So you only have their attention for one sentence, figure out how you're going to explain that problem to them. And that can include that animal in their natural state. Like they might be in the back of their kennel and not very happy. I think as long as we immediately follow that up with, here's how you can be the solution. And then once we complete the cycle of that story, so if that animal goes home, follow that up with that action, I, it's okay. Like we have to tell these stories for all the reasons that you're saying. Like we have to be able to talk about difficult things but we often forget to close the loop and tell people what happens afterwards. And that is, a, I think, another uncomfortable place for a lot of us because the immediate question I get is like, well, what if everything doesn't turn out okay? Like, what if that animal has to be euthanized because their health goes downhill? Or what if they get adopted and they get returned? And I think there's no easy answer to this other than we have to become more comfortable with transparency. And when we pair transparency with real authentic compassion. So like when we talk about animals who we have to let go or animals who do get returned, if we can talk about that in a way that first states like this makes us really sad, like we are heartbroken to share this with you and show a little bit of our humanity as the organization, we can tell those stories. And there are several shelters that I think do this really well. Casey Pet Project does a really nice job with this. Cincinnati Care does a really nice job of like communicating the urgency of their situation. They put out graphics that, you know, show the public like we are at capacity and they have like a dial that says this is what's happening. But they also balance that with a lot of really joyful content. And that really shows this strange kind of uh, dichotomy (laughs) of a world that we do live in where it's really hard. And there's also a lot of really good stuff happening. And I think that we just have to help the public go on the ride with us through some of that. The other thing that I do want to say about positive marketing is there haven't been a ton of studies about, you know, specific ad campaigns, but there have been a few and they're actually like 20 years old now that talk about like when we use guilt marketing, what happens is we typically can, if it's in a fundraising campaign, like we can raise the same amount of money, making someone feel guilty that we can making them feel good. But what happens is kind of this law of unintended consequences where the people who donate out of guilt may not also be adopting an animal from a shelter or may not also be, to use other um, outside of animal welfare examples, there is a, one of these studies was done on people with disabilities. There was a negative a kind of guilt-ridden ad campaign and a positive one. Both raised pretty much the same amount of money, but people who watched the guilt campaign had a sense that people with disabilities were living a difficult life, and that's why they gave to them, that they, they had an idea of people with disabilities that was kind of negative, like they were thinking of them as less than in some circumstances. The people who donated to the positive campaign had an overwhelmingly positive view of what it meant to be a person with disabilities and that they were donating because they felt like they were getting behind something that made them feel good and also was doing good in the world, but not in a kind of charitable, but then I don't want to interact with you kind of way, if that makes sense. We often don't think about that kind of law of unintended consequences that sometimes in the way that we do things, it might work in that moment. But what's the long term impact? Are we 
encouraging people to give to us or to volunteer, but they don't also want to get any closer to our mission or they want to give one time because they felt bad about that one specific situation, but they don't necessarily see the breadth of our organization and believe in our mission for the long term. It's super interesting. You know, Best Friends put the stake in the ground, said we're going to achieve no kill nationwide by the year 2025. Mm -hmm. Such an immense source of pride for me to be part of this larger movement that's going to solve a societal problem. Uh, Best Friends CEO Julie Castle talks about this. There are so many people in the charitable sector they're doing great work, helping people, whatever the mission is, but they're not going to solve the problem, eradicating disease, clean water, and developing world. They're going to make progress, but it's probably going to be generations from now before that's solved. But this, we can solve this in our lifetime, in our careers. I mean, what a privilege we have mm -hmm. to be part of this at this moment in time. And that kind of rallying together to end unnecessary deaths of shelter pets, man, what a source of pride for our communities as well, right? Together, our community, we can do this. Yeah. And I think that something that you just hit on is like, it's that we language that when it comes to, I think we largely in this field have an understanding at this point that um, life-saving is a community endeavor, like that we cannot do it as the shelter or the rescue alone. Like it's just impossible. It has to involve the community because these are companion animals who are going to go live with human companions. <laughs> and I think we forget sometimes to include just, just in that slight language shift, like instead of we as the shelter are going to do something, we as the community have this opportunity to make this change and starting to talk about some of our problems that way. Like we have to present problems so that people will get inspired to solve them, but it's that inspiration, not just like throw $5 at us and it's going to go away. It's like, this is something that we have the opportunity to do together and you can be a part of this really important thing. And sometimes that includes telling them about a really hard problem. Like right now, our adoptions are down, our fostering is down. And this is a difficult moment for the world. And that includes our, our animals in our local community. But here's how we can do it together and presenting them with the ways that they can help, I think is a really important part of not making people feel helpless and making them feel like they can do something about a problem that feels really large. I continue to see, Caitlin, incredibly frustrating messaging from shelters and rescue organizations that you could sort of essentially boil down to this. You need to help us because this segment of our community is bad. Those people are irresponsible, right? So we need you to make it right uh, you know, it's obviously not quite that in your face. I, mean, I don't know, sometimes I suppose it is, but but that's essentially the message. Yeah, I think it's such an important conversation to have, though. I think that sometimes we talk about barriers to adoption or barriers to inclusion, and the conversation starts and ends sometimes with just like our adoption application or like have more uh, inclusive photos of people on your website. And I think we do ourselves a huge disservice if that's the extent of the conversation because of exactly what you're touching on. <laughs> like, I think that for too long, the system of shelters has been take animals from one part of our community, place them in another. And we really quickly in a lot of communities see that that cannot be like, we're going to run out of places to put animals. First of all, if we're going to judge one segment of the community so harshly, and we also are not solving community level issues of access to care and 
why animals are ending up in our shelters in the first place. And so I really think it does all come, you know, all of this connects, like marketing connects to operations, connects to the very existence of our shelter in the community and how we're, we're interacting with people. It's harder to get your message out today, I think, to be seen on Facebook, for example. Um, you know, are my posts actually hitting the timeline? Are people seeing them? And let's be honest, it can be so frustrating to feel like no one is hearing you. You're putting your hand up saying help and no one's stepping up to help. You know, I've seen some pretty rough stuff over the years where organizations even start to blame people for not doing more. But we do have to ask people for help. But now, particularly with what's going on, there are so many needs, so many asks out there for people. How do I make sure that my asks are done in the right way and are able to kind of cut through that noise? I think there are a couple of important points about that. I think the first is that there will always be a lot of other things happening in the world. And the last two years have really, have really magnified that, that feeling of just like, how do I ask when there are such big things happening? But I think it's important when we feel overwhelmed like that to remind ourselves that especially our core group of supporters, but there are other people in the community that don't know about us yet who are also overwhelmed and they are looking for something that they can do locally because these huge problems that happen in our country and other countries, like they feel really big and people make, may make donations to that, but they don't feel like they can put their hands around those problems the way that they can if you present them with a local problem. So I think the first thing is getting out of our own way a little bit and kind of acknowledging, and this is an important part too of that kind of authenticity and just um, being human as an organization. Like it is totally okay for you to acknowledge in a social post, in a newsletter, however you're getting your information out there. This is a difficult moment in the world for a lot of people. And then pivot immediately to your ask and tell people what your specific problem is and how you want to solve it. In just being really compassionate and saying like, we know this is a hard time, but here's a local problem that we also need to tell you about that you can do something about immediately and you can have an impact on today. I think that's how we get people excited about some of this. In-person events are so important, especially with adoptions, I think, because you know, even if you're lucky enough to have the most beautiful facility, it may not be in the most accessible part of town. Mm -hmm. And even if it is, you've got the rest of town that may not be able to get there. So those adoption events are so important to get animals in front of the public where they are, but you're also then raising the visibility of the organization, of the work, of the mission. All of this seems to be so up in the air. I know some places are just back like it's 2016, but others have not. And the next few weeks and months are going to be a test. What are your thoughts on in-person events right now? I have a, uh, in this exact moment, I'm having a hard time saying to people, like, just do them if you can because of the Delta variant. And I don't want to be uh, giving that kind of advice. Like, I think it's going to come down to everybody's gut and what their community is doing. And certainly, if you can be doing something in person and find a way to do it safely, like, that, that is some creative thinking that we definitely want to put, you know, some thought behind. I think one of the reasons that in-person events have been so important to us is, is an access issue. And so we also need to go back to the drawing board a little bit and especially look at our processes over the last year, because I think doing virtual adoptions has been wonderful, but we have to ask ourselves if that also has put up stumbling blocks for people who don't have access to technology or who do, but the 
processes become somehow more confusing because they have to know ahead of time in some cases what animal they want to meet. And that is really hard without like just interfacing with an animal through the computer or through your phone to, to really feel confident in that decision. Like, oh yeah, I think this is the pet I want, but like, I don't know anything about them. <laughs> um, so if there are ways for us to partner with local businesses, like maybe instead of a large scale adoption event, you are doing a couple of different pop-ups with different businesses with fewer animals, but you're kind of hooking people in those locations, right? Um, especially if you have facilities outdoor, if you're someplace, I mean, right now we're lucky enough to all be in good weather, I think across the country, but as it starts to get colder, that's going to get harder for those of us in the, the Northeast and the Northwest and the Midwest. And I think that some of this is going to come down to like having to push a lot of buttons at the same time, which I know is not anything that anybody wants to hear, especially if you're operating alone in this, but it can be as simple as take your 15 minutes, pitch your local media, take your other 15 minutes and do a, a live video. Um, take another 15 minutes and reach out to a local pizza place, another local um, food delivery place and say, if I could get someone to sponsor flyers, would you put them on the boxes that you're delivering to people's homes or going into your local car dealership or calling them up and saying, hey, I know that you're still getting business no matter what happens. <laughs> can we put up Can we put up one flyer or will you include this when people buy a car, you know, like any of those places where people are having transactional relationships, a lot of those businesses are going to say yes, like if you can make it happen, they're not going to say no to like including you in some kind of package that they're giving to people when when people come into their facilities. I think especially if we end up going into another lockdown in some communities, the food delivery piece of the puzzle or grocery stores is really important because we know that those are the services that remain open. And I know that something like flyering sometimes sounds like a, a throwaway thing for people because they're like, how am I going to get the funds for flyers? And, you know, if that animal gets adopted, those flyers are immediately old news. So think about doing a flyer that is a little bit more generic, shows some real animal faces, but just gets people interested in your services. And then call up your local print shop and just say to them, here's the problem that we're having. This is so important for us to get in touch with people in the community through non-digital platforms. And you can put your logo on the flyer. You know, you might have to call a couple places, but a lot of these people are also going to say yes, or they're going to offer to you at a reduced cost. So it, it does require a little bit of a hustle, I think. But even if we're just talking about 15 minutes a day, if you're in a leadership position or um, if you're wearing many hats, to be able to just make those efforts, I think it's going to make a difference. And it really is all about looking at how do we build relationships with people, especially people that to date we have not reached. And that's where I think it does become so important to employ these other methods other than digital media. Like digital media is important, but that can't be our only lever that we're pulling because there are so many people that aren't going to see us there the way that the algorithms operate right now. Volunteers are so helpful, I think, uh, with everything, but this kind of stuff in particular, because our worlds are actually quite small. So there's a decent chance one of them might know someone at a print shop or know someone who knows someone. And when you're getting that done, don't forget to get that flyer translated you know, maybe your local Hispanic Chamber of Commerce can help you find a partnership opportunity with someone in that community to get that translation and effectively reach them. But make sure you are actually serving that community if you do that. And don't just ask people of color to do free work. Yes, 
I'm so grateful for you to saying that because that's another piece of this puzzle when we talk about communication and also where it intersects with DEI and some of the ways that we have historically left segments of our community out. Like whatever prominent languages are being spoken in your community, that's another huge turnkey that you can essentially like ask for help with and hand it over to someone else, but it's going to open up new doors for, for adopters. Caitlin, I appreciate you. I appreciate HeartSpeak for all the work you do supporting uh organizations, folks across the country. We covered quite a bit, but is there anything else we didn't talk about that you wanted to mention? I think that one thing that we didn't talk about just specific to adoptions is thinking about the bios that we write as a way to break down barriers and the way that we hook people, especially in lockdown or when we're doing digital adoptions um, or virtual adoptions, I should say. I think that sometimes those bios or those pet descriptions are a little bit, they're either um, super long, <laughs> pages long, or kind of a throwaway thing because we don't have a lot of time. It's another great place to get even digital volunteers, like having people sign up to be a, a digital volunteer who want to kind of refresh some bios or help with writing. Um, it's another great place to partner with colleges or high schools and local creative writing classes and things like that, but not taking for granted that the information that we put in there has everything to do with the way that people view adoption. Like they will never make it to the application or to the survey that you have if you don't make it a welcoming experience through the bio. You know, the photo is maybe the door that they walk through. The bio is how we're going to take them on the journey. And the adoption survey is the end goal. We want to get them to that point. So making sure that the language that we're using about animals isn't stereotypical, that we're not stereotyping our potential adopters by making sure that they uh, have to have fences or, you know, or that we're putting them through all these hurdles that ultimately are keeping animals in our care and not in really good homes in the community. I have been a renter almost my whole life until two years ago, and I've never had a fence. And I've always had to walk my dogs on leash. And they've had really good homes, I think I can say. <laughs> um, and I think that a lot of us, when we just reflect on our own experiences, like, we don't fit that model of the perfect, I'm doing air quotes, like adopter. And we have to be okay with that in our community as well. Like we have friends and family who are not our quote unquote ideal adopter. And we just have to question what exactly that means because we know a lot of animals who live in really good homes in a lot of different circumstances. And it's very easy to focus on the times when things go wrong. But I, I want to remind you about the millions of times that things have gone right and that it will be okay. <laughs> and biowriting is kind of its own topic, but we have a ton of resources on the HeartSeek website that um, you know provide some language options, provide if you have a little bit of writer's block, we have templates, we have a lot of ways for you to really engage in writing a bio that is welcoming and breaks down barriers. We've got links to the HeartSpeak website and to resources that can help you find ways to increase your adoptions up on the podcast website, bestfriends.org slash podcast. Scroll down just a bit. You'll see episode 76, bestfriends.org slash podcast. The team behind this program, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast. <laughs>